This is The Professor and the Hack, Episode 2, A Starker Than Usual Choice. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack, in which uh, PVO, uh, Professor of Politics at Griffith University and at the University of Western Australia. How do you have to be Professor at two universities, PVO? Well, we're not being full-time at both. <laughs> there you go. Two half-professors. The two half-professors and the hack. I'm the hack. I'm Hugh Remington. And, uh, well, the race is on. It's fully on. What's shaping up? Well, I think there's an inevitability in this campaign that Bill Shorten should win it. But, of course, in political campaigns, as you well know, uh, there's nothing that's certain. And that would be the, the nervousness that would be in the Shorten camp is that this is their election to lose. You know, if he finds a way to lose this election, he removes or unseats John Hewson as the fellow that lost the unlosable election from that 1993 debacle against Paul Keating. So there's a couple of things there because the, you know, the old tropes of politics say that the only thing which is going to clearly give you an indication as to who's going to win an election is the long-term trends on two-party preferred across a number of polls. In other words, you take a big mm. sample and the trend lines will tell you who's going to win or not. But at the same time, there's increasingly the view that people are making up their minds later and later and later. So how do you square that circle? Yeah, look, there's so much in that. The only thing I would add to that is primary vote, particularly for the coalition, can be an interesting thing as well. Uh, the reason I say that is because there's been this fracturing on the right uh, of that vote, if you like, that solid vote for the Liberal and National Parties, and it doesn't always come back, whereas in the Labor Party their primary vote has declined for years now, but it pretty much always comes back via the Greens at a huge percentage. But absolutely, you're right. The, the two-party vote, uh, the margin of error in individual polls is so high at around about 3% that that's the difference between victory and defeat virtually on every single poll that we talk about where we say this is a landslide to Bill Shorten or this is a comeback to Scott Morrison. So take the most recent news poll, for example. Uh, you know, we're talking about 52-48. Uh, that could just as easily actually be 50 149 in the other direction, or it could be a blowout at 55-45. So that's where the trend lines are important, Hugh, because you need to look over that series of months to see, is it narrowing or are they expanding or is it roughly staying the same? And any of the above, if you like, takes a little bit of that margin of error out of the equation. But your point about late deciding voters is interesting. A lot of voters have always decided late, but more now than ever. And that's because fewer of us today naturally align with one side of the major party divide as opposed to the other. Most of us are prepared to swing between the two major parties or indeed vote for third forces. And we often make those decisions late. So it's almost a, it's almost a paradox, isn't it? You've got, you know, so much emphasis put in these opinion polls and like the way we just started this discussion, me saying that this is Bill Shorten's election to lose. But most voters, or at least close to half, if not more, are actually ultimately deciding when they walk in to cast their vote. I guess what the polls are picking up, though, is where their leanings are. Mm. And their leaning at the moment is for a change of government. So how much does it then matter if people are increasingly making up their mind on the last day? How much does it matter who the candidate is? We often, we're so focused on leaders, we think that the elections are really all about is it Shorten or Morrison, that's all that's in people's minds. Mm. But all politics is local. And some candidates are star candidates. And over the course of a campaign, people might get to know them a little bit and think, oh, that, you know, I like that person. Or alternatively, they realise they're complete duds. How, does a candidate matter? How much does a candidate matter? Oh, a candidate matters, but when the tide's going out, the candidate gets swept up in it, no matter how good they are, nine times out of ten. Uh, longevity 
as a popular candidate matters as well. So, you know, Christopher Pine, who is as irritating as he is interesting, uh, is somebody who nonetheless, in retiring from the seat of Sturt in South Australia, for example, brings that seat into play because he's been there so long that he does have a personal following after all those years. But most academic research, at least, suggests that candidates don't pull in more than 5% on their own. So it's 5% is it, a big difference. There's well, a lot of seats within 5%. And that's the difference between a, a wipeout result versus perhaps hanging on. But that's the maximum. Uh, a lot of candidates who have only one or two or even three-term candidates, which is what most marginal seat candidates are, by the way, because they come and go, they're more like 2 or 3% difference. But that's not insignificant. And it's a really important point because the national polls that you see don't ask voters when polled about the candidate. They just ask about the party. And there are, if there are, 2 to 3% of people in a particular electorate that walk into the booth and they say, well, I think the government's had its time, but I like Luke Howarth in Petrie or I like whomever it might be in this other seat, then, well, yeah, that can be the difference between holding on or not. And the national opinion polls don't pick that up. And that's why governments usually win the close elections because the opinion polls are, if anything, probably a little bit more favourable to the opposition. So the incumbency benefits the government in those tight ones. And they're the ones that hold more seats, obviously. So it does benefit opposition city members as well, but oppositions aren't targeting the seats they already hold. They're taking them for granted nine times out of ten. They're looking, they're on the prowl, trying to find seats that they can win. So if candidates have a, or the quality of the candidate has a small but perhaps significant uh, element in there, when you look across the country and you look at the issues, how much do you think the mood varies depending on where in Australia you're living? Well, I think the issues certainly vary, and I guess hand in glove with that, the mood about whether the government needs to change or not. This is a hard campaign for both political leaders because inconsistency, particularly in the modern media age with social media and all the rest of it, gets found out pretty quickly and gets reported on once found out just as quickly. And that's a problem on a campaign because you look like either a hypocrite or you're backflipping or you're saying one thing to one group of people and something different somewhere else. But take Victoria. Victoria is concerned about the Adani coal mine. It's a more progressive state. Uh, Climate change is on the radar in a way that it's not somewhere like Queensland where there's more of an overwhelming sense of, yes, let's get Adani done or... It's just jobs there, isn't it? Absolutely. And not being told what to do by, you know, kind of weird, greeny, lefty Victorians. Definitely. And all of that put together uh, means that, you know, what message works in one state doesn't necessarily work in the other. Often people talk about Western Australia and Queensland having similar voting sentiments, South Australia and Victoria having similar voting sentiments, and then Tasmania, I suppose, is considered to be a slightly more robust version of the progressive attitude in South Australia and Victoria. And then that really just leaves New South Wales as the biggest state but as a very varied state. You know, you have those sort of inner-city electorates that vote one way and the sweep of marginal seats in inner and outer metropolitan western suburbs of Sydney, which are, are seen as going in other directions. So different views all around the country Hard for politicians to play to all of those without being accused of being inconsistent. Yeah, and campaign directors are looking at this thinking, how do I pull a lever? How do we arrange a lever that's going to work in Queensland that isn't going to annoy someone further south? And it's telling that the Liberal Party have moved their campaign headquarters for this election to Queensland. They're trying to, if you like, not just hold the line in Queensland, which is one of the big swing states. If you look over historical elections, Queensland more than any other state moves hard 
from election to election. Whereas other states, you know, you have movements at the margins or when there's a, a big change of government, sure, there's a bigger move. Queensland seems to be the most volatile state. The Liberals have moved their headquarters up there. They're trying to hold the line and even pick up a couple of Labor seats. Now we'll see how they go. Their problem state, though, is Victoria. That's where Bill Shorten's from and Bill Shorten and the Labor Party off the back of a very strong state victory for Labor as well. They're hoping to win a minimum of three seats in Victoria and possibly as many as nine. The Coalition seems to be of the belief, or the Liberal Party seems to be of the belief that it might be able to hold losses in Victoria to maybe two seats. And if they can hold Victoria to two losses, then they've got a fighting chance to pick up enough elsewhere. Well, let me let me jump in. If they hold Victoria to two seats, then they've got more than a fighting chance, I would say, because that would mean losing presumably Dunkley, where on the redistribution it's notionally a Labor seat, and then let's say perhaps Karanga might. But then they'd have to somehow find a way to hold Latrobe, which looks gone, Deakin, which is where Bill Shorten launched his election pitch. A bit cheeky, though, 6% in Deakin. Well, 6%, but you've got Michael Suka there as the local member who was one of the key architects behind the Dutton push, which is least popular in Victoria compared to any other state. But do you think voters think about that? They, they say, look, there's Michael Suka. Oh, he's got Dutton. He's, he's the sort of the Queensland hard right representative and I'm going to kick him out. Are, are voters thinking on that level, do you think? 95%, if not more, of voters are not thinking that way. But even if it is 1%, 2 3 or 4% who are... Those are the very politically astute voters, if you like, who follow this on a daily basis. They're going to shift on that and they would be traditional progressive liberal voters that say, I'm not rewarding that bloke. It's the same phenomena in a way that Tony Abbott is facing in Warringah with Sally Stegall challenging him as an independent. If he's going to lose that seat, it's actually going to be the informed progressive liberal voter that makes a conscious decision to vote against the party they usually support. So that in Deakin, combined, I think, with the natural shift in Victoria and the problems that the government have down there could well bring Deakin into play. And, and I mean, I could go on. We've got, you know, Flinders with Greg Hunt. He's got a similar problem. Aston's in the mix. I don't think Labor's going to get all the seats that they want in Victoria, not if the election tightens. But, boy, as you mentioned before, if Liberal strategists do hold it to just two in Victoria, then it is absolutely game on in the election. What an interesting race that might be. I noticed that... Uh, Obviously, one of the seats that the Liberal Party desperate wants to get back is Wentworth, Malcolm Turnbull's old seat, which uh, Dr Karen Phelps picked up uh, in the by-election there. And they're running again the uh, candidate defeated last time, mm. Dave Sharma, very smart former diplomat. But I notice that, I don't know how common this is around the country, but I, I notice that he is branding himself uh, not with Liberal Party colours. He's got a paler blue than the Liberal Party mm -hmm. colours. None of his billboards say Liberal Party. He is branding himself as a modern liberal. Uh, is that an oxymoron? Yeah, well, I don't know. No, he would say not. <laughs> and, and, you know, a guy like uh, like Turnbull himself would have said he was a modern liberal. But, was... Hugh, it's obviously an issue because if you're calling yourself a modern liberal, it means you're looking at your parliamentary or, in his case, his hopeful parliamentary-to-be colleagues and you are implying that they're not modern. Absolutely. And that goes to exactly the point that the cracks yep. are so great that even those who are trying to win seats for the Liberal Party, I don't know how many others out there are styling themselves as modern liberals as opposed to liberals, but uh, they're, uh, you know, if, if you're styling yourself as a modern liberal, as you say, you're kind of saying in distinction to what, in distinction mm. to the rest of the party, and it signals to people that if you vote the Liberal Party back in again, that the fight between modern liberals, moderate liberals, conservatives... 
uh, you know, the, the, the National Party agreement, which obviously caused such merry hell for Malcolm Turnbull when he took over the prime ministership, that basically all that ugly stuff is still going to be there. Oh, the, and the innuendo of it towards your colleagues, even though I can understand why he's doing it electorally, I think Tim Wilson and others are doing similar, but the, the suggestion that goes with it, it's like me describing myself as a thinking journalist or a thinking academic. I'm suggesting that all my colleagues don't think, and so I'm throwing that in there just to distinguish myself. It's, it's quite offensive, to be frank, but I get it in terms of what he's trying to do in his backyard because they lost Wentworth precisely because a lot of progressive traditional Liberal voters decided that the Liberal Party hadn't appropriately modernised. I mean, this is history war stuff, but one of the things, I fall into that camp as somebody analysing the Liberal Party. I, I find the Conservatives overstating the conservatism of the Liberal Party historically. You know, they look at someone like Robert Menzies and they say, well, he was a Conservative. Well, actually, almost anyone existing in the 50s and 40s and 60s looks conservative now the because... The Labor Party was deeply conservative. Absolutely, I mean... Sure, they were socialists, but they were on so many levels conservative. The white oh, Australia policy still existed oh, under them until Corbyn came along. And the, you couldn't have got a more conservative thing than the Labor Party. Absolutely, but, I mean, I just mean society was conservative. You know, the yeah. concept, for example, of same-sex marriage back then, you know, was... was would, would have been considered ridiculous to even discuss. Now, you know, so many Australians voted for it and, and perhaps more if it was a compulsory voting structure. So you can't, as a Conservative today, pick historical figures and claim them as your own just because the times were more Conservative. You've got to look at what they were in the context of their times. And Robert Menzies stood up to big business. You know, he shifted and formed the Liberal Party, ending the United Australia Party precisely for that fact. He described himself as a progressive and wanting the Liberal Party to in no way, shape or form be a conservative and reactionary party. You know, this was his raison d'etre at the time. So this is something that Liberals are going to battle with if they lose the election. If they win the election, of course, they won't touch any of these philosophical debates because they'll be too busy, A, crowing about pulling victory out of the jaws of defeat, but also then obviously having a discussion about policy in government. It's funny, though, because... I mean, this is one of the interesting things about about this coalition government, if they were to be re-elected, is that these philosophical splits have been an open sight when they were in government. So usually it's oppositions that decide mm. what they're going to be and in government you just get on with the business of government, governing and enjoy it and maybe argue with yourself in the very tail end of a government. But you kind of get the feeling that even if the coalition was to be returned, they would not have other than the sugar hit of an election victory gets out of the way, they would not have resolved these deep and fundamental issues about what conservative right-hand side politics in Australia is all about. Well, we could, I mean, we could do so many episodes on this because you go right back to Howard's time where John Howard made the Liberal Party more conservative than it had been in periods in opposition and certainly through the Fraser years as well. And I would argue that it was historically uh, under Menzies, as we were talking about before. But then they never had that period of reflection when Howard lost in 2007. And the reason they didn't, of course, was because they found a way back so quickly with Kevin Rudd and all the leadership problems and the implosion on the Labor side. So they parked that discussion to get back into government, almost got there in 2010, didn't have the debate over the next term because they looked like a shoe-in for that, that three years. And, of course, once in government in 2013... They'd never really had the debate, but the cracks, as you point out, started to open up. So they're ripe for the picking when it comes to having one of these serious soul-searching reflections. But frankly, so is Labor. I mean, the Labor Party in their own way haven't really been through too much of this either. They went through bits of it 
during the long Howard years, but you know they're they're a long way off knowing for certain what they stand for. The left and the right of the Labor Party have got as much that they disagree about as that they agree about. And look, this is one of the problems though with major party politics because voters today don't think of themselves as tribal. They don't pick one side. The issues aren't easily defined as left versus right. Most of us jump around. I think most people listening or people who vote look at people that are so tribal about the two major parties and don't understand it because they think about the individual issues or the leaders or what the times bring. And major parties, which are quite clunky organisations, are struggling with the fact that modern political philosophy is not easily defined as left or right. If you want news delivered differently... Rebel Wilson is co-hosting the show tonight. It's confusing, Carrie, because I'm like i also blonde and white. Uh... The project is where it's at. Tomorrow is the National Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. If it's going down... What the hell is going on? We're breaking it down. Would you go so far as to say that Facebook have destroyed democracy? We need to go back to MySpace, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's the news tuned to a different beat. Good times, Carrie. Good times. The project, weeknights on 10. So we've talked about the parties, we've talked a little bit about the leaders, we've talked about seats. What about the issues? It's being framed plainly as um, Labor will be big taxing, the Coalition says that it will be responsible and deliver tax cuts and, and get rid of debt. But Labor is offering something which is remarkably different. This is not a oh, yeah. either or, you know, not a, not a sort of a... Uh, there's a lot of philosophical difference. I really want to stress this. I mean, elections in this country are often Tweedledum versus Tweedledee. Yes, there are differences. There's always differences between the major parties. But because we have compulsory voting, you know, and because uh, we have the system that we do, usually the major parties are clamouring for the centre. And so they're quite similar as they try to appeal to those swinging voters in the middle. This time, the direction that the Liberal National Government want to take Australia versus the direction that Labor's proposing are incredibly different. I mean, we really are at an interesting time when I think the public are probably a little bit tuned out and, and not inspired by the political leaders, but on the policies, Hugh, the differences are stark. And you mentioned tax. This is one where the Labor Party are proposing to tax a lot more. Tax goes up under them pretty significantly as a percentage of GDP, but they're unashamed about it because they're closing tax loopholes that they say overtly benefit the wealthy or that aren't responsible or that are problematic in the years to come because of where the economy's going. And then they are spending bigger in areas that they unashamedly say government should be spending more on. And what this becomes for voters is a decision where you say, look, what kind of government do we want? It will be bigger and have more expectations on it under Labor the Liberals say, well, no, you know, smaller government, lower taxing. I'm not necessarily sure that's where voters want government to go. I think we want government to do more, but what we want to know is that if we give them or charge the government with that responsibility, you know, that we can trust them to do a good job. You know, it's funny because if I was having to run a campaign, I think it's a lot easier to, sell, to take out all the sort of the, you know, the bad stuff that's hanging around the coalition, changing of prime ministers, you know, the accidental prime minister with Scott Morrison, what happened to Turnbull, all the rest of that kind of stuff. If you're just simply trying to sell a message, it seems to me that the coalition argument 
We will give you tax cuts. We will pay down debt. We will keep the borders secure, which has been an issue for lots of people. Mm. That's a pretty easy sell rather than the Labour one, which is we're going to give you more, or, or, and it may not be to you, it may be to someone else whose needs are greater than yours. Uh, we're going to tax you more because that's going to be the net effect and hope that people be- will buy in for that. Well, there's a few things to that. I mean, the, the first one is the people that they are taxing more are on the wealthier end of the spectrum. So there's a, an interesting debate about how many voters they are hitting with their increased taxes and therefore what electoral impact it does or doesn't have. Now, the government are working very hard to say that it hits a lot of us, you know, people, more people than you might think use negative gearing or use franking credits or the whatever. The famous nurse and the police officer. Exactly, all of that. So we'll see where that lands. But that's certainly what they're trying to paint it as. Labor says otherwise. So there's that side of it. But the other issue for me is that, yes, the Labor Party have a more complex message and the government's message is much more simple. But the difficulty, and you hear, this is why you hear Bill Shorten talking about this, the difficulty for the government is that their message is simple and it might be easier for them to sell if they hadn't had all the leadership turmoil in both parties, the Nationals and the Liberals, but they have had that. And that's why Bill Shorten keeps pointing to that instability. It's starting to feel a bit dated, him doing that, though, because Scott Morrison is kind of embedded there now, even though he's the accidental PM. But certainly at least a couple of months ago, all of that was an issue. I just wonder whether closer to polling day, the sharpness of the message that you talk about cuts through because people have stopped thinking about what got done to Malcolm Turnbull and what before that got done to Tony Abbott and so on. And Scott Morrison is not hated. He's not a figure of hate. It's it's not as if Dutton had won. Uh, A whole bunch of people in Australia would have said, whatever happens, we've got to move this guy out. He's too too far to the right. He represents things that they don't like. Whereas Scott Morrison is one of these, um, you know, he's a soft. He's, it's hard to get a real sort of sense of loathing directed at him. He, you know, he, he, he's, he, people can criticise him for looking smug or smirking and all kinds of things like that. But he's not a hate figure. No. And and that's to the advantage of the government, I guess. But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I, I agree with all of that. You look at Scott Morrison. He's he's, he's got sort of earthy elements to him. Sure, he grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs, but his dad was a cop, you know. he He's in the Shire now and he genuinely seems to have embraced, you know, things like the Cronulla Sharks, even though he didn't start in that space. Yes, he's a bit smug. Yes, he's actually an insider. He likes to attack the bubble all the time, but, you know, his entire career has been built around, you know, insider roles, including as State Director of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Having said that, though, politics is all comparative at the leadership level. And compared to Malcolm Turnbull, he looks much more in touch with people. That wouldn't be hard. But equally compared to Bill Shorten, he looks like less of an insider because Bill Shorten was such an obvious insider, both in his parliamentary career and his role in the removal of Rudd and then in turn Gillard and in his union career before that. And yes, I'm not sure that Scott Morrison's that popular, but he looks popular compared to Bill Shorten, who is clearly unpopular. Um, fairly or unfairly. So if you think of politics as comparative, you know, if Scott Morrison was up against a more impressive figure in one form or another than what Bill Shorten is seen to be, I think he'd have a lot of problems. But in the context of Bill Shorten, he looks good by way of comparison. Now, that sounds very bad for Bill Shorten, everything I've just said. The one little sort of, if you like, glass half full final comment I'd make about Bill Shorten is all of his weaknesses to one side, um, strategically... 
if he wins this election, this is worth remembering, he becomes the first first term opposition leader to go on to become prime minister since Andrew Fisher in 1914. And that's not even a proper comparison because Fisher had actually been prime minister, lost an election, and then got it back one year later as opposition leader. So it's well, he's the first term opposition leader who's done two terms of opposition. To then win, yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and that's pretty remarkable because, you know, Beasley obviously tried it, didn't get there. There's been plenty of others. Most get, of course, removed by their own colleagues through coups. That hasn't happened to Bill Shorten, some people would say, because he hasn't had another Bill Shorten in his ranks. <laughs> um, but it, but it hasn't happened to him. Now, it's interesting what you say there about the uh, negative gearing effects, all those, those arguments about who gets hurt by these loopholes, that when you look at what Labor's trying to do, in many cases it's not trying to win those seats from the Liberal Party where the wealthy Liberals live, the most wealthy. For example, in Tony Abbott's seat of Warringah, North Shore, for example, in Wentworth, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's old seat, the rich eastern suburbs, um, even if you look at uh, at Josh Frydenberg's seat of Kuyong, it's not the Labour Party that's mm. going to take those seats. So all they need to do is to um, create a circumstance where an independent, which is where the threats are coming from, take and seize those wealthiest uh, Liberal Party seats. And that, that robs the Liberal Party of such powerful seats that they never previously ever had to think about. You've identified one of the real big challenges for the government, or for the Liberal Party in particular, at this election, which is that they're essentially fighting a war on two fronts. So you're right, Labor are trying to win key marginals in various battleground states around the country. And in those seats, oh, look, you know, negative gearing and franking credits, it has an impact, but nothing like, as you say, in the safer, wealthier Liberal seats. But the government, the Liberal Party, are fighting this war on two fronts because, as you point out, in those safer seats, they're fighting independence or, in the case of Kuyong with Josh Frydenberger Green in Julian Burnside, but there's also an independent running there as well. A number of them aren't going to win. You know, I don't I don't see um, these independents winning all of these seats. I think the one that's most likely is certainly uh, in Warringah with Zali Stegall. But it costs the Liberal Party hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions when you add them all up, fighting to hold seats that they would normally take for granted. And they have to put human capital into it as well. So these volunteers that normally head out on election day or in the you know handing out of uh, material before election to other marginal seats from where the party membership is strongest in the safer seats are now staying at home because the local member or the local candidate is trying to win or, or hold that seat. And that is a real drain. It's a brain drain. It's a it's a human horsepower drain, but it's also a very big financial drain on a party that's already coming from behind on that front because as being the underdogs as well as not having the trade union movement behind them, fundraising hasn't been easy for the Liberal Party and they've made it harder on themselves with the leadership change. They fired their biggest fundraiser from the Prime Ministership. I'm not sure that Malcolm Turnbull's going to be of a mind to put more than a million dollars into this campaign like he did into the last. Uh, their biggest fundraiser with big business is gone, Julie Bishop, uh, and their biggest fundraiser with smaller and medium-sized businesses, Craig Laundie, has retired as well. So they've got an issue on that front and it comes back to that challenge that they face in those safe seats where the negative gearing campaign and so on doesn't matter because those independents are saying, oh, we're against that. We don't agree with Labor on that. We're still at the beginning end, really, of the of this campaign, and a lot of the campaign is going to be taken up with holidays, the Easter break, 
uh, you know, is a period when people will just be switching off to, to go to other things. How potent in the run-up towards the end do you think it is that we, we, what we saw in the budget, the long-term tax cuts that are on offer, if the Liberal Party can address people at their own level on the tax scale, on the pay scale, and get into their heads how much money they will save a year over time with those tax cuts. Not the first ones which Labor has said, yep, mm, we're up sure. with those, but the longer-term ones. Do you see that being where the coalition argument in the end, you take out all the arguments about whether electric vehicles are a good thing and all those other little bits of flummery around the outside, but that it'll eventually come down to you'll have more money in your pocket with us. It's a classic play towards self-interest, isn't it? It's really interesting. Uh, they certainly hope that that's what it's going to do. They're trying to win over their traditional base, um, wealthier voters, and they're doing it with massive tax cuts. I, I would question whether those tax cuts would ever get through the parliament anyway because of the Senate. No matter what the Senate looked like, I could imagine the crossbench continuing to block them. Labor will certainly never vote for them. But it's a powerful narrative for the government. I mean, suggesting that someone on $200,000 is going to ultimately get an $11,500 tax cut that hits them every single year that's a huge savings. As opposed to Labor, which for anyone over $180,000, the tax goes up specifically on those on, on that group. There's an enormous difference. Well, there's a real test then, isn't there, of, of you know, I, I think it was a guy called Inglehart, Ronald Inglehart, was the academic that talked about post-material voting tendencies, which is to suggest that you're wealthy enough or comfortable enough that you vote around other matters. That can include things like the environment, climate change and so on. We're going to find out how much, uh, you know, Lawyers and, and wealthier people earning over $200,000 really care about all those things because you've got a Liberal Party, you know, large chunks of whom deny climate change is even happening. Uh, they scoff at the idea of a, the electric cars proposal of Labor and they debate or discuss the possibility even of a state-owned and operated new coal-fired power station. Well, I wonder how strong they're going to feel about those issues and therefore not voting Liberal versus taking a look at the fact that, well, you know, if I support them, I might have an extra... $11,500 or more in my back pocket via tax cuts. It's, it's a classic old-fashioned debate between your values, uh, which are meant to be virtuous, versus your hip pocket. And one of the things, I thought it was a tactical error by Josh Frydenberg in the budget because he, he has delivered in his long-term tax cuts, uh, tax cuts which in dollar terms inevitably give more back to the wealthy because the wealthy pay more tax, so therefore it's easier mm. to do it, but also proportionally the say the tax benefit is stronger to the wealthy than it is to the poor so uh, or the, the, those are, those are middle incomes and that it seems opens a door for labor to say under your tax cuts yeah sure you're offering tax cuts but the wealthy will get wealthier faster than the poor get wealthier yeah, it goes against the argument of reducing inequality. Most economists the world over talk about the value to a national economy of reducing inequality, but like it or not, uh, inequality obviously rises if you're giving much higher tax cuts in a proportionate sense to the wealthy. But we've got to, this is where the tax system, frankly, needs much bigger reform than either side of politics is suggesting. It needs another tax summit like we had shortly after Hawke was elected. I think in 84 they had the tax summit that Keating presided over we need another version of that because the problem is is that we've got a, a massively well we've got a very high tax free threshold uh, at nearly twenty thousand and so if you are looking at the spread of tax uh, it is disproportionately in an overwhelming way paid at the upper end now you come to expect that but 
There are ways in the tax transfer system to fix that. We won't bore people with this in too much detail, but a mix of consumption tax increases, which seem to be a, a dirty concept these days, the idea of putting up the GST, that with more tax transfers for lower and middle income earners would be the kind of thing that economists would argue is worth looking at as a way of providing more tax relief at the upper end. But that's a complicated debate. And, and it's not one they're willing to have there. right now. No, we don't right. have the time for that. Yeah. Peter Van Onselen, The Professor, good to talk to you. Good to chat. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 